Welcome to Impact Unicorns, the podcast where you meet inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies. And now, here is your host, Dr. Injernil Ghosh, award-winning author, investor, and advisor to global leaders. Detlef is the founder and CEO of New Ag, an innovative platform that invests in farms around the world and transforms their practices to be more regenerative and resilient. Regenerative agricultural methods, if applied on a global scale, have the potential to sequester teratons of atmospheric carbon dioxide into the soil, to greatly reduce the use of fertilizers while enhancing soil nutrients and improving the nutritional content of the food that's grown. Detlef started New Ag with 40 years of agricultural expertise under his belt. Early in his career, he led Cargill's European grain business before launching four farming and agricultural trading businesses that have spanned Europe, US, Australia, and Africa. Detlef, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, it's great to be here, Indranil. Detlef, I've been looking forward to this episode of Impact Unicorns for quite some time. Um, we met about three years ago, um, you'll recall, at a conference of sovereign wealth funds where I f- had my first exposure to this mind-blowing idea of regenerative agriculture. When you explained to me many of the things we're going to talk about today, about how these uh, innovative uh, practices can help to uh, improve the quality of the soil, improve soil nutrients, and ultimately the nutrients of uh, content of the food that's produced. But one of the most incredible things is the ability of soil to capture carbon if it's maintained properly. And through conventional farming methods, sometimes we do the opposite. Um, release carbon into the atmosphere from the mismanagement of the soil. But there's a huge potential to capture that carbon back and have a a significant impact as a result um, on um, the the climate change issues that we're facing today. So fantastic uh, conversation that I'm really looking forward to. But usually we start these uh, discussions by getting under the hood of the individual, the entrepreneur, uh, and you're creating this extraordinary platform called New Ag, focusing on uh, regenerative agriculture. But tell us about some of the roots of Detlef Schoen and uh, how he's come to be launching this uh, incredible platform. Well, this goes back, and I I shouldn't really give you the number of years, but certainly well over 40 years uh, when I started agriculture. at the time, I wanted to become a geneticist, and then I had my first economics lecture and uh, shifted gears and uh, went into agricultural economics. And I'll never forget my first lecture in agricultural politics. So here's this professor and said, ladies and gentlemen, what we're going to talk about today is the re-internalization of the external effects of agriculture. And guess what? That's exactly what we're talking about today with a 40-year timeline. Um, so in that sense, you know, um, spent time at university, um, spent my formative years you know, directly from university being hired by Cargill. So I was very fortunate being able to run Cargill Germany at a very young age and then run the European grain business for Cargill um, and left Cargill. Uh, when the wall came down between East and West Germany, it was an opportunity like, you know, you're once in a lifetime somewhere in terms of being a pioneer and a uh, putting stuff to work that I had learned and had been hardwired for at Kaggle, like, you know, 
commodity risk management and agribusiness. Um, so I set up my own grain origination and uh, storage and processing and exporting business in Pomerania in Northeast Germany, which I did for about 10 years and then sold it to my silent and not so silent partner. Um, during all the time, I've been an organic farmer uh, in my spare time, uh, raising organic beef cattle uh, on my farm um, on a lake in East Germany, um, which I did full time after having exited that business, got in incredibly bored um, and went back into the global trade business and ran the global grain book for a company called Nadira um, out of Rotterdam and Buenos Aires, um, which was the classic trade flows, North and South America, you know, Russia, Ukraine, two distribution hubs in Singapore, Shanghai, Beijing, uh, Middle East, um, East Asia, um, which I did for a brief time and then decided I was getting too old for a, you know, pure trading business and went back to my farm again, um, got incredibly bored again, and then was persuaded to get into the financial industry uh, right during the GFC, um, when everybody was hiding behind their desks. Um, and it was very difficult you know, to get people interested in you know, what I thought was an intriguing proposition, which is exactly the same proposition that we're discussing today, multi-geography, multi-sector, um, large-scale, diversified agriculture investment platform. At the time, the appetite wasn't there for you know, a, a slightly more complex vehicle. So instead, we wanted to raise money for a pure play, if you will, um, one country, one sector strategy, was, which was dairy in New Zealand. So I ended up becoming a New Zealand permanent resident, spending six years on and off in New Zealand and overseeing the management of 20 or thousand cows. Um, again, already at that time, you know, um, grass-fed, um, low-cost, climate-positive. And in fact, um, when I stepped away from, from that business, um, and in fact, my brother has taken over when I did, um, what is left of that cluster of farms is today probably the world's largest uh, cluster of uh, organically produced grass-fed milk. Um, so uh, that is still going on. I stepped away from that in 2015, retired again, this time in, in Australia, where I was farming um, beef cattle, again, grass-fed beef cattle for a friends and family um, acquisition strategy in um, east of Melbourne. And got persuaded by inside investment. Inside investment is, you know, an 800 billion AUM subsidiary of Bank of New York Mellon, uh, based in London, and uh, with a small at the time, you know, agricultural investment fund. So they persuaded me to come to London and run that investment fund, which I did in 2017. And in 2019, it became clear that this particular franchise had no future within Inside. And however, during those two years. I spent a fair bit of time putting together, you know, and organizing my thoughts around what I think should be the strategy of the day. Um, because what happened between 2008 and 2019 is a very, very significant paradigm shift. First of all, farmers have gotten those 10, 11 years older. 
uh, on average. So today's farming population, the, the demographics of farming are such that you know, most farmers are above 60 years of age on average. And more importantly, most of them don't have a successor. So by definition, there is this massive equity gap opening up in agriculture at a time where you know, private capital is looking for a home. We have you know, a interest rate environment different from in you know, the early days in 2008, 2009, 10. Um, and we have the means today in terms of technology to farm differently. And we have finally understood that continuing on the trajectory that we've been on since the beginning of the so-called green revolution are toxic. So, you know, no other industry, no other sector in the world can move the needle in terms of climate change as much as farming, because it, on the status quo trajectory, agriculture and food between them emit about 25 to 30 percent of world greenhouse gases. So on a, you know, on, it, if you do not change the way the world is farmed, food and agriculture have the potential to tip the planet over the edge, climate-wise. Conversely, if you change your ways and go into what you alluded to, you know, regenerative farming practices, you can become a net sequestrator of CO2 because, let's not forget, I mean, photosynthesis is just converting CO2 to calories and protein at the end of the day, CO2 plus water plus sunlight. I mean, that's what photosynthesis, that sort that's the basis of all farming and food production. So farming is, in fact, a big, massive user of CO2. So what is, you know, there's nothing more natural than use all that CO2 and do so in a way that allows you to not put more than you take out of the atmosphere back into the atmosphere. And that's what regenerative farming is all about. So here's that science, here's that perception, here's that, you know, is the fact that people understand that farming is a massive problem, but farming can also be a massive solution. And how do you get it from being a massive problem to being a massive solution? The answer is you need two things. You need capital and you need technology. The technology is there that wasn't there 10 years ago, and the capital is there today that wasn't there 10 years ago. And is also there is a, there's a demand for capital, equity gap, which wasn't there 10 years ago. So there's a massive shift. And, and that's what I'm getting out of bed for in the morning because it's so exciting to be able to sort of be a part of that paradigm shift and be part of that, you know, if you were catalyst um, of, you know, transformation. Um, so um, that's what we do. And that's what New Ag is all about. So our, we, we put a small team together um, and we have a large network of local partners uh, in order to help institutional capital sort of navigate what to them is quite often a, a very alien and esoteric space. And so we are, we're wearing all these hats. So we're wearing a hat of being an interpreter between Wall Street speak and Farm Street speak. We are obviously, we can walk up to a farm in drive up in a clapped out old truck and wear gumboots and a big hat and you know talk to farmers. But we can also, if necessary, although I probably haven't done so for a while, we can wear a tie and sort of uh, speak financial speak. Um, and um, and what we bring 
I think other than the passion which we're sharing with lots of peers, but what we bring to the table is that experience of having done this for 40 years um, and not just discovered this as a new game in town, which of course it is. So Detlef, uh, sounds like you're very busy on your sabbatical on your farm and you've done this uh, several times in your career. Um, seems like it's important uh, for you to take stock and bring together all of your experience and, and thoughts from time to time and come up with you know, new, a, a plan or an idea for ventures that meet the, the conditions of the market at a given time. And you seem to have done this several times throughout your, your career. Tell us a little bit about what you do in that you know, quiet time between your ventures, because I'm interested to understand how you put the pieces together and how you, you plan your, your next adventure. Well, there's I, this this partner I mentioned that I was setting out, you know, with on my first business in the East Journey with. I mean, he had this golden rule which I've adopted to always take one hour a day where you just reflect on whatever needs you know deserve, deserves reflection and put sort of importance ahead of urgency. Um, and to me, that's been a fantastic rule, and I've, I'm trying to do this every day. Whether you know, I you know, you can take a walk, or you can just um, have a look and uh, you know, do the stuff and uh, look out over whether it's the sea or the, the the nearest pasture, whatever. But I think just take some time out and force yourself not to be a slave of your diary um, and just spend a little bit of time thinking about the the important issues in life. Um, to me, that, that's been incredibly, yeah, in retrospect, and even today, very, very important. Um, we all, obviously, we all sort of normally in the situation where urgency beats importance. Um, and uh, just to be able to make time um, and, and uh, just think without any specific Thing. What I find very helpful in that context, I mean, I'm a horse rider and I love sailing. Both are activities which take your mind off the day-to-day -day worries, but leave you enough bandwidth so you can you can still reflect on stuff without you know being constantly you know just busy um, navigating whatever things you're doing. So in other in other sports or other hobbies or whatever. So. Uh, golf, golf. Although I'm not a golfer, I'm told um, you know serves the same purpose. So that that can also obviously contribute. Yeah, these reflections, I think, are particularly important when setting up an impact business because in an impact business, you're often trying to uh, put together different ideas or different constituents, but uh, to construct a completely new different, uh, completely new business model sometimes. Um, and this art of cross-disciplinary thinking, bringing different strands of your experience together in a, in a new um, way of um, addressing a, a social problem, but which also has a productive economic model behind it, is a really creative exercise that needs, I think, this type of you know, continuous uh, practice of reflection and putting all your thoughts together to create something you know, quite new and transformative. 
Um, and you seem to have done that, you know, with new ag. So let's maybe start breaking down, you know, the, the new ag uh, approach. Um, you alluded to some of the big problems that new ag is trying to solve. Um, perhaps you could elaborate a little bit on, you know, what is the big food production problem that we have today? What are the, you know, drivers, you know, sending us towards the precipice of just being able to meet our food demands and in the process, you know, depleting our natural resources on the planet? I think you can, if, if you want to sort of break it down or narrow it down to two or three or four factors, I think you can start with synthetic fertilizer. I mean, nitrogen first and foremost, but also phosphate and, and um, you know, carbon-based pesticides. Um, so what we've, when I went to university and generations before me, and certainly at least one or two generations after us, have all been told, you know, told this green revolution thing. So all you needed to do, if you know something didn't quite you know work on your farm, you just poured on a bit more nitrogen or phosphate or both, and uh, and you sprayed all these pests until you got rid of them. So with, of course, as we all know, the corresponding loss in biodiversity, not only in terms of you know our flora and fauna, but also and below ground because you know there is billions of of microorganisms per whatever square or cubic meter below ground, and the more the more fertilizer you pour on, and the more pesticides you spray, the more you know inert that topsoil becomes, and effectively you're reducing what is the living organism to becoming a substrate for an almost hydroponic production system. So, and that's what's been going on. And not surprisingly, the incremental return on the additional ton of fertilizer and the yield response to that incremental fertilizer has been coming off over the last decades. So in other words, in order to keep growing our production per acre, per hectare, whatever, we needed to pour on ever more fertilizer. So we've become ever more toxic with the obviously not surprising results that, you know, a lot of our groundwater in Central Europe is way above, you know, toxicity levels. Um, so we have nitrate issues. Um, we have phosphate runoff. If you look at the Mississippi, for example, uh, dead zones in the Mississippi, we've had massive environmental damage. Um, and uh, our the way we've been sort of policing, orchestrating, rewarding, whatever our farming industry has just plain been wrong. And it's if and obviously I'm not saying something which is un, you know unknown. If you look at the EU taxonomy, if you look at the plans for the next 10, 20, 30 years in the EU common agricultural policy, there's going to be a massive shift away from that system and towards a you know, environmentally responsible production system. Um, so clearly uh, the world has understood that we just cannot continue you know, on, on that trajectory of just pouring on ever more uh, carbon-based um, fertilizer. Let's not forget nitrogen fertilizer um, is not something which you produce from mining or like phosphate, it's produced by you know a very very energy intensive chemical re chemical reaction, where you you effectively 
take nitrogen out of the air and convert it to uh, uh, what we then find again as urea or other forms of nitrogen. So it requires an enormous amount of energy, which not surprisingly means it's mostly effectively a derivative of natural gas. So a very, very fossil uh, carbon intensive um, production system. The, the, the good news and this, in many ways, the sad story also is that is not necessary. The, the, if we had we known what we know today, 20, 30, 40 years ago, probably we would have, we would have tried to get away from that earlier. Um, however, at that time, we did not have the technology that you need to do so without suffering a loss in physical yields and returns. The, the niche answer to this for you know, many years has been organic farming. And we can get into the debate of whether organic farming is synonymous with regenerative farming. And of course, it's not. I mean, there is, there is regenerative farming that is climate positive, but not organic. And there's organic farming, which is unsustainable. So there's, it's, one is not exactly the same as the other. But at least in general, organic farming, of course, um, has, by definition, um, made to do with with organic fertilizers only, therefore no no fossil fuel fertilizers, pesticides, or whatever. So to the degree there has been that little pocket, it it has certainly helped to mitigate the damage. However, it it hasn't been able to do so at scale. I think we need to we need to transform farming as a whole, not that little. And admittedly growing and hopefully, you know, continuing to grow, you know, organic component. Um, so it has to be mainstream. Mainstream farming has to be regenerative. If, if and when it does, it has the potential. Um, if you look at pr project drawdown or whatever, you know, food and farming combined of all the industry that analyzed in this project drawdown um, study have the potential to contribute most to reversal of climate change. So mm. here we are. Let's just go over that carbon balance and that production balance once again. So basically what you're saying is, you know, conventional farming, you're actually emitting a lot of carbon dioxide to produce the fertilizers because they come, you know, as a derivative of natural gas um, and in the processing to, uh, to create the, the, uh, the, the nitrogen and base fertilizers in particular, um, uh, you're, you're using up a lot of energy, which is often fossil fuel based, um, and you have this uh, very energy intensive process. Yeah, and, um, and you're oxidating, you're oxidating soil, soil organic carbon back to CO2 by disturbing the topsoil. Plowing yes. is classic. And you also, to the degree that your nitrogen fertilizer isn't absorbed 100% into your topsoil, which it never is, you're emitting nitrous oxide, which is multiple in terms of virulence, if you will, toxicity of CO2. And then, of course, on top of that, you have the methane emitted by burping cows and sheep. Um, so if you add it all together, today's agricultural greenhouse gas balance is severely carbon positive, climate negative. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got the fertilizer impact, you've got the you know, the release of carbon from the soil into the atmosphere. So it's actually 
even though the plants are taking in carbon dioxide, you know, you're actually releasing it back from the soil and you're not carbon neutral more, you're carbon releasing in the farming itself. And of course you have the, the livestock issue with the methane from, from the manure and so on. If you're enjoying this episode of Impact Unicorns, don't forget to visit us on the Apple Podcast mobile app or iTunes and leave a rating and review. Your feedback is essential to help us bring the most relevant impact venture stories to the show. The video version of the show can be found on YouTube by searching under Impact Unicorns. Please like, subscribe and hit the bell to receive notifications of new shows. And, and at this point, allow me to sort of break a lance for, for the livestock. I mean, yes, livestock in and of itself, talking about ruminants, um, of course, has a methane problem, which is being addressed, by the way. So um, I think 10 years from now, we'll be able to feed stuff to uh, sheep and cattle and dairy cows, which allows them to significantly reduce the methane emissions. But putting that aside, regenerative farming and the is very difficult without a component of livestock because what livestock also does is putting organic nitrogen back into the soil. And the way, you know, so your ideal rotation in a, in a regenerative agriculture row crop or annual crop uh, system is say five years of rotating crops and two years of grass, so where you so your soil actually takes a breather effect. I mean, literally a breather, um, and you use livestock to put some more nitrogen back, um, which is not fossil, into the soil because obviously the, the you know your ruminants just convert the grass they eat, i.e. you know the the nitrogen component the, through the you know protein, amino acids, whatever, back into nitrogen that goes back into the soil. So so it's it's wrong to sort of validify, um, you know, livestock as the, the rootstock, you know, root cause of all evil. It is, it, you know, managed well in a rotating um, grass-fed um, system. Livestock can actually help saving the planet, if you will, by, being, you know, contributing net CO2 sequestration. Livestock in feedlots um, is a totally different story. So that is... That is severely climate negative. Yeah, thank you for that clarification. And if we look at the production um, requirements, uh, there was an interesting statistic that I, I got from you in one of our previous con conversations where you showed me a chart where, which showed that uh, the number of hectares of farmland per person will go down eightfold between 1950 and 2050. Um, and that's of course, because population has, incre has increased a lot, or will increase a lot in, in, this, in this one century time period. And even the fact that we've been increasing the amount of farmland um, uh, that we, we cultivate over that period still means that we have to produce basically eight times as much food from a hectare of farmland than we did in, in 1950. Um, by the time we get to 2050. Um, and based on what you said about the diminishing returns from putting uh, nitrogen and phosphate potassium fertilizers into the soil, 
um, you know, we're getting to a point where putting more of that stuff in doesn't get you as much additional production as it did before. We seem to be kind of approaching this uh, yield cliff, if you like, or the yield gap. Um, so talk us through a little bit about how regenerative farming needs to produce as much, um, if not more, in terms of production per unit area of land as before, but needs to somehow now do it in a much more sustainable way. Mark, first, let me say that regenerative agriculture is not about producing more per acre than conventional agriculture. It's the, you know, you would expect to produce roughly the same per acre in terms of physical yield. You just use um, different and less inputs. Um, however, going back to that graph and that equation, it's extremely important to remember that in very rough terms about half of today's agricultural production is used as animal feed. So 50% of all calories and protein end up you know, going through some animal stomach and being converted to beef or milk or you know, white meat, red meat, whatever. Um, so that is what absolutely inevitably needs to change. We just haven't got the luxury of these conversion losses because in, in, in not talking calories, just talking weight, that it takes seven to eight kilos of grain to produce one kilo of beef. It takes three and a half kilos of grain to produce one kilo of pig meat, two and a half, one kilo of poultry meat, uh, one and a half, one kilo of fish. In whatever you do, there's a massive conversion loss, not, and not just in weight, also in terms of calories and proteins. So it's actually no problem to feed 10 billion people if we stop eating meat. Um, and for, for different reasons, you know, obviously we seem to be on, on our way there. Um, so I'm, I'm not worried about not being able to feed the world. I'm worried about not being able to feed certain pockets of the world. You mentioned yield gap. So yield gap, obviously, for the wider audience, is the difference between what's theoretically possible in a, you know, to farm, to produce on a, in a given piece of soil and what's actually being produced. And this incremental, diminishing incremental return um, example relates to mature, highly productive, state-of-the-art production systems in the US and Canada, in Europe, other, you know, some other parts of the world, Australia, New Zealand, wherever, where you have a fully developed agricultural production system. If you look at other parts of the world, and of course Africa comes to mind, the yield gap is absolutely enormous. You have parts in whether it's Rwanda, Uganda, some other places where you probably have the world's best production uh, conditions for maize, corn, and uh, some of the world's lowest yield. So, and so the question then, of course, becomes, you know, A, how is that possible? And B, if this carries on, what is the result in terms of migration pressure, conflicts, whatever, and, and of course, mortality? Um, and see how can you address that, um, which is in itself probably something for another podcast of yours where they, someone more qualified to talk about than I am. But certainly, clearly, we, we will not solve the, the world's food 
you know, supply problem um, without solving the African problem. Yeah, that's definitely um, you know a regional topic that needs urgent attention, given that that's where all of the population growth is going to happen over the next thirty to fifty years. Yeah. And that's precisely so, where the yield gap is. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's precisely where the yield gap is. That is a very troublesome um, issue, which is more than a food issue, as you said. It's a, it's potentially a source of conflict, migration, and lots of other dislocation. Uh, the good news, however, and is um, and um, forgive me for for sort of this 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 comparison, but I'm talking about Africa, I'd like to compare this to. What we've seen in the um, in some uh, technology sectors take take mobile uh, mobile phones. I mean, we when I grew up, we went from an AS four hundred IBM to various you know to personal computers, whatever. That AS four hundred in the nineteen eighties was as big as my room here in this hotel, and had a computing power a fraction of my mobile phone today. Um, Africa went from, you know, I don't know, from a the Middle Ages effectively into a system where everybody, you know, knows how to operate a mobile phone. Um, they they jumped across all these various stages right to the cutting edge technology that's available today for mobile communication um, and much more than that. And I can see something similar happening in agriculture because all the stuff we talked about, all that toxic, misguided, as it now turns out, um, production system has bypassed Africa. Africa has a tradition of sustainable regenerative farming. It's just lacking the, the regulatory framework, you know, land ownership issues, whatever. It's lacking, it's lacking the whole supply chain. Um, from genetics all the way to the supermarket, you know, you have certain certain parts of that supply chain that work, hard, but hardly ever do you see a functioning supply chain from the genetics to the shelf in the supermarket. So if you solve that issue, Africa could actually be, you know, a showcase for successful regenerative farming practices and take, you know, maize yields from one and a half tons per hectare to 15 tons per hectare without you know excessive nitrogen pesticides whatever without killing the bee populations and all the other things that are the sort of the collateral damage of today's production system well that is quite an uh, inspirational promise actually and maybe we can get into that because you know one of the things that um, a regenerative agriculture will need whether it's starting from the base of a, of a traditional farm in Africa or an industrialized farm in, in let's say, the US, one thing it'll need is investment. Tell us a little bit about what are the key investments you need to make to create a, a high productivity regenerative agriculture system? Well, it's, it's different answers for different geographies. So I think going back to our established mature Called it OECD um, farming industries. All it does is lots of capital and technology. Um, what it takes in places like Africa is effectively 
a holistic approach, as I was saying, from genetics to the whole value chain. So you have to parachute in everything. Other than just all you have is the land and, and the people. Not much more than that. In many places, you have lots of water. Um, so there's so much water that is not being used, you know, for irrigation that could be used. And in other places, of course, you have severe shortages. Um, but you would act, you do actually need to have someone with the with the vision and the courage to, you know, not just buy a farm and try to produce some grains or, or seeds or milk or whatever, um, which may or may not work out. You need some someone or an organization or a group of investors, whatever, to say, well, we do everything. We organize what is the best you know, genetics adapted for this climate? What sort of varieties? What sort of tissue cultures? How do we propagate this stuff? Um, how would you grow it out? What is the best you know, production technology in terms of you know, which sort of tractors do we need? Uh, and so on. How do we collect our data? Uh, what do we do with the data? And then how do we process? How do we transport? How do we avoid wastage? All that stuff to the point where, you know, you're, you're, you're producing food, be it processed or not, that is then actually used, you know, by your local population. Uh, so if you have, if you understand this value chain dynamics, and if you're willing to invest enough money, I'm absolutely convinced you can make lots of money in Africa. The problem is that it's, it's sort of counterintuitive if you say you know, a billion-dollar investment done properly will probably be a much, a much lower risk proposition than a $10 million investment, which you may or may not need to write off. So, which is, and again, not surprisingly, why Africa so far is more or less or is dominated by public-private partnership type of investment um, as a way to mobilize capital quite often still today on a, on a debt basis, be it working capital finance or whatever. Um, also because in most cases, there's no need to buy the land. I mean, you can lease the land um, and operate it, um, but still you need significant capital for that whole value chain. And if you produce... Wheat, you need to be able to turn it into flour. If you have flour, you need to put you need to be able to turn it into bread. If you produce the bread, it needs to be brought to market. It needs to, stuff needs to be refrigerated and so on. So um, it's 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 a fantastic project. Um, but um, other than, as I say, organizations like the World Bank, IFC, and and some more philanthropic, the Bill Gates Foundation, or whatever. I mean, there's quite a bit of money um, being deployed there. Um, but to make this sort of financially, commercially attractive, it requires significant investment. And not surprisingly, there, you know, the industry, financial industry, is looking at lower hanging fruit and looking at this sort of, okay, these are the gross returns I can make. Now let's talk about the risk adjustment factor I need to apply to be able to compare this with an investment in, you know, northwestern U.S. or whatever parts of the U.S. which are benefiting from climate change, have heaps of water and whatever, um, and uh, not 
and again, allow you to deploy capital at scale. Well, guess what? That's where private capital will go before it goes to Africa. Tell us a little bit about new ag, because um, that is actually playing a big role in trying to mobilize capital uh, to, to solve the, these agricultural uh, challenges in developed markets uh, and perhaps some emerging ones as well. Tell us a little bit about how your, your, your platform there is, is structured and your plan for mobilizing capital to get um, the kind of financial returns that your investors are looking for. Yeah, so I think our, our, our IP is all about combining a top-down approach with, with a bottom-up presence. So it's a bit like some of the bank slogans, sort of, sort of think globally and act locally or something. So, so what we do is we have what we call our heat map approach. We're looking at Mother Earth um, and say, okay, what are, what are the sort of cash returns that you can make on a unlevered 10-year uh, pre-tax basis in Africa, in Russia, in South America, in North America, in Europe, in whatever parts of those geographies, in row crops, in cotton, in dairy, in beef, in sugar, in whatever, in permanent crops, almonds, apples, citrus, you name it. So, okay, so then, then we have a sort of world map that shows us, okay, these are the gross, not risk adjusted, these are the gross cash returns. And of course, they will, they will be cyclical over time. Some cycles are longer, some cycles are shorter, but we are in a cyclical commodity type business. So, we, so, so these are not static snapshots. These have to be readjusted as these cycles change. So we take that snapshot of Mother Earth in September 2021 and say, okay, today, this is what you can make in almonds in California. This is what you can make in corn in, in Illinois, and so on. And on top of that, we then say, okay, what is a realistic assumption about capital appreciation? Now, obviously, across the industry, that is in, in effectively as a result of what you were mentioning earlier. This increasing scarcity of farmland, of course, makes, it makes this asset class so attractive because it's an intrinsically appreciating asset. We need more and more farmland, and there's less and less farmland. So obviously, there is you know, that underpinning appreciation pressure, totally different from infrastructure and real estate, which are the, if you will, the competing or neighboring asset classes where you have intrinsically depreciating assets. On top of that, you're producing a vital good, so you will always have a market for food. Um, so that the combination, so you're intrinsically cash flowing and you're intrinsically appreciating. But that is, let me put that aside and go back to your question. So we, so we look at this snapshot and we have this map of the world. These are the sort of cash returns. These are the sort of capital gains that you can achieve not by hoping for some magic inflation pressure, but by saying, well, what are the what are the inefficiencies that you can solve? You know, how can you put water and land to the highest and best use? It's not always land use changes, or quite often just a simple recapitalization. But whatever that is, there is there's the ability to create value. So value creation and cash returns. And then you have these gross effectively IRR equivalents. 
And then it's a matter of how do you risk adjust these numbers? And if we're in Uganda, then chances are you will have a higher discount to you know, compensate for political stability, a rule of law, title ownership, um, freedom of capital movements, whatever, all these things. And there's other things. There's climate change. I mean, is this particular sector and this particular geography a net beneficiary or a victim of climate change? And if so, to what degree? Um, various other little you know, things that play a role. How mature are the input and output markets? How sophisticated is your whole value chain? Um, sources, you know, funding, you name it, various other things. So you look at all these things and you come up with a risk adjustment factor for all these what we call country sector pairs. Country sector pair is what I said. You know, corn in Illinois is a country sector pair. Dairy in New Zealand is a country sector pair. Beef in Uruguay, country sector pair. So, so you've risk adjusted all these things. And what you get as a result is a scorecard, which is a ranking. And so what today on a risk adjusted basis gives you the, the most interesting returns. And of course, one of the big uh, risk adjustment factors that I did not mention is volatility, the expected volatility. And risk is expressed in price and return volatility. How can you make sure that your return volatility is lower than your price or yield volatility? The answer is you need to invest in a in an area and a sector that is a dominating supplier. Give you an example. If you're investing in corn in the US and you have a crop failure in the US, you have higher prices because the world needs the corn from the US. If you're investing in corn somewhere in a peripheral economy, it's irrelevant. You may still have lower prices, although you have a crop failure because you have a bumper crop in the US or in Brazil or wherever. So all these things need to be considered when you're constructing a portfolio. So that's what we do. So we take that high level view and say, from our perspective, today's ideal portfolio, where you're also mixing things like income elasticity and various other things, should consist of so much of this and so much of this and so much here and so much there. And then you say, okay, I'm on top of that. What sort of environmental returns can you generate by increased biodiversity and sequestration of carbon, i.e., at the end of the day, an increased soil organic carbon, which is effectively the measure that you need, the metric that you measure in order to capture you know, what you've done to the topsoil. And if you combine the two, the intriguing thing, of course, is that other than in most every other industry, sustainability, ESG, in this case, the environmental benefit and the biodiversity, whatever benefit, does not come as an expense. There's no trade-off. It, you know, it done well, a regenerative farming enterprise will have the same return expectations as a conventional farming enterprise with a better, in Wall Street speak, sharp ratio, because the resilience of your production system is so much higher that your return volatility, yield volatility, is lower. So therefore, you have a more robust production system, therefore a lower risk with the same gross return. So you have a more attractive overall proposition. I'm rambling, so you have to stop. 
That's fascinating. So basically, this is portfolio theory applied to global agriculture. So you're dividing it into pockets of production pairs, as you as you called it, and you apply your regenerative techniques to reduce the volatility. Um, maybe incur some upsides in the future from your revenues from carbon credits and whatnot that might come along in the future. But which, the by the way, we do not we do not model. We deliberately not do not model any monetization options. But that that that's obviously prudent uh, given you don't know what will happen. But it, it's definitely a potential upside. But nevertheless, at the heart of it, what you're doing is you 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 um, allocating capital to the most um, um, productive um, you know countries uh, crop uh, pairings. You're reducing the volatility through re regenerative farming techniques, and you're basically creating a, a financial uh, product uh, through capital allocation across you know, global agriculture. And I think that's that's fascinating. And, and just bringing it back also to the equity gap that you mentioned earlier, you know, in in the in the podcast, is simply by capitalizing some of these farms which are undercapitalized and you know running out of um, you know people to run them. If you can bring in professional management. Um, you know, putting aside the, the regenerative farming techniques, that itself has, um, you know, a, a potential to increase the return. So you're addressing well, yes, well, many, although, many of the factors. Yeah, if I may, I mean, the classic mistake that the uninitiated investors tend to make is to bring in that external management talent and try to outfarm the locals. So we have a difference. So our approach is to select the best available farmers and empower them to grow their business rather than parachuting in a university graduate from some whatever fantastic university uh, and drop him off over Washington State or Illinois or Florida or Lithuania or wherever and say, go and do your stuff. You're such a, you know, you're well-educated, you know, you think. It, that's a license for disaster. So in our view, it's much better to identify the good operators locally that are held back because they're cash constrained and just lift that constraint and say, here's the cash, do what needs to be done, You know, put your farm on its hind legs, future-proof your business, what needs to be done? And the answer will be different in a beef farm in Uruguay than in a citrus farm in California or a, an apple farm in Washington State or wherever, but you know, so but that's it's more, if you will, more of a private private equity ish DNA in the sense that it's people driving the business. A a good farmer on a bad farm will always outperform the bad farmer on a good farm. So the people component is very important. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, not at all. I think that's a, a critical component, you know, in co-opting the community and helping to regenerate it, rejuvenate it by empowering, you know, the most capable people, I think is uh, is also um, perhaps a soft factor, if I can call it that, that's often forgotten, but which is really central to your model. So all in all, um, you know, I think uh, your sabbatical <laughs> on your farm has been highly productive putting together this uh, quite sophisticated financial view of how to look at uh, global agriculture and putting in the lens of uh, the talent and also the regenerative practices. Yeah, and, and um, maybe, Indra, if, if 
because I inter- I shot myself in the foot by interrupting. But what what you were alluding to, and I think what needs to be put out there, is the sheer size of that equity gap and the the reason. That's the reason why that he is an emerging asset class. I mean, if you look at the the asset value of global agriculture, and this may be out by thirty percent, but to you know, in in simple terms, say it's worth ten trillion dollars. Global upstream agriculture. About six trillion of that is in our target geographies, the US and some, you know, Australia, whatever. If you then look at the fact that a major part of that will change hands in the next 10 years, driven by demographics, the equity gap just in our target geographies, I mean the US, Uruguay, Chile, Australia, New Zealand, you know, Spain, Portugal, whatever is well in excess of a trillion dollars. So there is demand, and the equity gap is not just the total amount of money. That's a, that is the difference between the equity that's left over in the business once the existing farmer generation has retired, which will suck a lot of equity out of the industry, and the amount of money that banks are willing to land. And, and the big difference between today and pre-2008, of course, is that you know, in the old days, if you will, it was all about debt service capacity. So if a farmer can buy, you know, the farm next door, you know, reduces unit cost by 30%, have a much more profitable business, a bank would have lent him the money. Today, that's impossible. It's all about loan to value. So that farmer is unbankable, um, which is why, you know, we have this private capital, demand for private capital. So there is at least a trillion dollar being sucked into that industry, whether farmers like bankers or Wall Street or not, there's simply no choice. And so, so our role is to you know, help that capital, which is sort of running up and down um, the playing field on the sidelines and trying to find a way to get into the game. So our role is to show them how to get into the game. That is a large um, wall of capital that needs to find the right home and the right model to produce food in a, in a sustainable um, carbon sequestering manner. So clearly no end of opportunity for new ag. So thank you for shining a, a light on the path forward, Beth Lev. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And, uh, Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, I look forward to catching up with you in a few months, a, a year, and see how you're getting along. Thanks for your time. Thanks. If you've enjoyed this episode of Impact Unicorns, don't forget to rate and review this show by scrolling down and clicking rate this podcast. And join me next week as I talk to more inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies.